difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with... Scott Tobias. And... Genevieve Kosky. Tasha Robinson could not be here tonight because she was recently put into hypersleep. If there's no mishap, she'll return for the next episode. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're exploring two films from the opposite ends of the same ape-filled franchise. Genevieve, want to guess what movies I'm talking about? Hmm. Opposite ends of an ape-filled franchise. If I had to guess, I'd say you're probably talking about the Planet of the Apes series. So that means we'll start off by discussing the 1968 film Planet of the Apes, starring Charlton Heston as an astronaut who travels to a strange, seemingly far-off land in which apes evolved from humans. It's the first in what would become a long-running series that inspired four sequels, one remake from Tim Burton, and, most recently, a trilogy of films inspired by the original series that began with 2011's Rise of the Planet of the Apes, then continued with Dawn of the Planet of the Apes in 2014. So that means this week's episode will focus on the recent war for the Planet of the Apes. Am I right? Remarkably, yes. You did not confuse this with some other series featuring talking apes. Nice work, Genevieve. (laughs) We'll start by discussing the original madhouse of a movie after this. I can't help thinking that somewhere in the universe there has to be something better than man. Has to be. The words are Charlton Heston. Get out a last signal to Earth that we've landed! The world he finds out in the galaxy will challenge every idea you've ever had of civilization. A planet where man is the lowest order of living things, and the superior beings are apes. They build the cities. Make the laws, the gods, and control the guns that hunt a race of lowly, terrified humans who run wild in the jungles, are caged in the prisons, and stuffed in the museums. 20th Century Fox transforms the motion picture screen into Planet of the Apes. Pierre Boulle's finest novel since Bridge on the River Kwai. World gone insane. An upside down civilization could not be real. Yes, a world of madness and terror. Man has no understanding. He can be taught a few simple tricks, nothing more. You did it. You cut up his brain, you bloody baffled. It's a man! So guys, this is a podcast about movies, but I want to talk briefly about a TV show, specifically The Flood, a six-season episode of Mad Men set against the backdrop of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., in which protagonist Don Draper, with a son in tow, wants to take a break from all the chaos of the world. So he seeks escape where he has throughout the series. He goes to the movies. Specifically, he buys a ticket to Planet of the Apes, a science fiction movie already a few weeks into a successful theatrical run. But instead of escape from the turmoil, Don finds the upside-down world around him reflected back from the screen. 
he unexpectedly finds himself watching a film that uses its fantastical setting to offer grim commentary on science, religion, race relations, and other issues before a last-minute reveal that suggests the end of the world as we know it might not just be inevitable, but imminent. When the lights come up, Don appears dazed by his unexpected glimpse of the apocalypse. To really appreciate Planet of the Apes, with its much-quoted lines and famous ending, it's worth taking a moment to put ourselves in Don's position. Though science fiction writing had long since started evolving from its pulp days, and The Twilight Zone, Star Trek, and The Outer Limits, and other series have been pushing the genre to new places on television, the 1960s had not previously been a golden age for thoughtful science fiction movies. From the creative makeup, to the big ideas at play, to the uncompromising ending, this was something unsettling and new. Yet, for all the final scene's famous bleakness, Planet of the Apes isn't shy about announcing its final destination from the start. While Heston's tailor prepares to enter hibernation, he records a long monologue about leaving the 20th century with no regrets, and wondering if his listeners in the future live in a world where man still makes war against his brother and keeps his neighbor's children starving. When it comes to humanity, Taylor's not a fan, so it's one of Planet of the Apes' best ironies that circumstances turn into its only defender, restoring his faith in humanity, even if it does so just in time to squash it again by showing him the Statue of Liberty half-buried in the surf. And so a film ostensibly about talking apes reveals itself as a film about civilization, progress, and human nature, whether embodied by an actual human or one of the apes that's taken our place in the far future. And it leaves us where it left Don Draper, feeling like Taylor felt, unsure about the future of the species we've been born into, and forced to reconcile those doubts with the knowledge that leaving it is not an option. What I know of man was written long ago, set down by the greatest ape of all, our lawgiver. Cornelius, come here. Reach into my pocket. Read to him the 29th scroll, 6th verse. Beware the beast man, for he is the devil's pawn. Alone among God's primates, he kills for sport, or lust, or greed. Yea, he will murder his brother to possess his brother's land. Let him not breed in great numbers, for he will make a desert of his home and yours. Shun him. Drive him back into his jungle lair. For he is the harbinger of death. So, Planet of the Apes, let's talk about it. Genevieve, have you seen this one before? I had, but funny story. Apparently, the time I had seen this previously, I had not seen the prologue where okay. they, uh, where he's recording his uh, message before going into hypersleep. So that, that part of it was new to me. Everything else that I had seen before. It's kind of essential, though, kind of to establish who he is and his view of humanity. It is, it, but also like realizing that I hadn't seen it before made me think about what the movie would be like without it. Mm-hmm. And I also kind of like the idea of it just starting with the crash landing and like learning about these characters as they walk through the Forbidden Zone and their characters kind of being established that way, which you still do. But in terms of Taylor specifically, I think that prologue just like kind of sets up his inherent smugness <laughs> uh, a lot stronger. So I think maybe I was left with a much stronger impression of that aspect of his character than I maybe was the first time. How about you, Scott? You've seen this before, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, actually, just to continue that thought, once they do get on the planet, there's enough 
conversation, I think, to reveal that aspect of him. Not that I'm sure. saying that, that What you're saying is fast forward until you see the credits. That's right. <laughs> Unnecessary information. No, I, I, I like all that stuff. And also the fact that he's kind of alone giving this monologue is, is different than you know, when he was with his fellow astronauts. But I like this film a lot. Um, I have seen it before, but it, it had been a very, very long time. Though not so long to where I did not know the twist. <laughs> I mean, can you forget it? <laughs> no, I mean, I didn't. It just was so part of the culture. Yeah. Just like just like Soylent Green. There's all kinds of uh, Heston uh, things where, it, where everything was ruined, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he, he's kind of, he was kind of a period when he was in movies that have big twist endings. Mm-hmm. And if you know them, kind of colors the way you look at the rest of the movie. Well, he also kept playing these characters who were sort of representative of sort of humanity's last mm-hmm. gasp. I am, I am Legend is him too, right? Uh, Omega Man. But Omega yes, Man, same, which same, was made same, into, yeah. Right, I, I knew I got that wrong. The Omega <laughs> Man and Planet of the Apes and Soylent Green are just very similar characters in those. But um, I like the film a lot. It's You, you put it in the... In the intro, it just it really is a as an allegory, I guess, for all of these different things. Um, it, it works so well; it's so elastic and also really complicated. You can go through so much of the film thinking that is a it is a movie in defense of of science and of of reason and and of the theory of evolution, and then you get to the end and all of those things are sort of thrown up in the air. And yeah, well, I, we should talk about Dr. Zaya, who I think I th- played by Maurice Evans, who I think in some ways is almost the same the heart of the movie for the apes the way that taylor is for for the human characters here and, and he's sort of part of a brotherhood that knows the truth about their origins has kept it from the general populace and you can't really say that this was a wrong decision as as much as it's anti-science anti-reason it also kind of keeps them in the state anti-history. of anti-history anti-history <laughs> uh, keeps them in a sort of a, in a state of a, a arrested development that keeps them from pushing forward to the stage when they might uh, you know blow it up yeah. So how is that not well, wrong? <laughs> how is Dr. Zayas? Yeah, well, there's, there is that, but it is, is I, a- I, anti I, all those things that we think of as uh, virtues of humanity. Yeah. So, right. I, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm inviting you to expand on like why Dr. Zayas is right in keeping this information. Oh, I mean, it keeps them, you know, if progress toward a bomb and apocalypse and self-destruction and extinction are inevitable, are the inevitable end of scientific searching and, you know, humanity's technical progression then perhaps keeping the apes in a state that where they don't reach that is not necessarily the worst idea. Yeah, I agree completely. And, and I invited you to expand upon that because that in particular, that aspect of Dr. Says' character is what struck me a lot more this time in the years since I had last seen it, it. He just kind of like softened in my mind to a, a more of a flat villain character. But mm. there's this really rich ambiguity to his reasoning behind his actions that I, I think is a lot more interesting than the journey that Taylor is going through. Yeah, it, it, and it really benefits from bringing in you know first rate actors to play mm-hmm. to play the apes. You have you have Evans, who was a you know a Shakespearean actor, and you have uh, Kim Kim Hunter, and you have Rodney McDowell, and from bringing in Michael Wilson, who's who's a you know strong screenwriter to rewrite uh, the Rod Serling screenplay, which was apparently quite different. Although it did Serling did introduce, as you might expect from the creator of the Twilight Zone, <laughs> introduced the big twist ending. Yeah, and I wonder if if you were a person sitting in the theater at the time uh, would you you be able to kind of guess see that coming would, would i don't you? think so though i think so <laughs> you do <laughs> because okay. there. it's such like a, a weird mental exercise because you can't like forget this mm-hmm. information no, it's such I, a huge part of the culture i knew the twist before i saw this movie the yeah, first time yeah me too me too but this time watching through i, I was a lot more aware of like how does Taylor not realize where he is now? Mm -hmm. You you know, like as you say, there are humans there, the 
geography is very similar to Earth. Like, presumably an astronaut would know the minuscule likelihood of finding an Earth-like planet in the far reaches of the solar system that can... Go dandelions? Yeah. (laughs) Well, okay, I would say this. It is established repeatedly that he believes he's on a planet where apes evolved from humans. Yeah. So there's that kind of topsy-turviness that once you sort of get that in your brain, you're not necessarily going to look around for other possibilities. I guess I can, they've I can been, see that. You know, they've been traveling for a while, too, and, mm-hmm. and presumably feel like they've uh, made progress in the universe uh, beyond you know, going back to Earth. The, though I, I do give a great deal of credit to the director, uh, Franklin Schaffner, and his, I guess, location <laughs> scouts for finding the most alien-like yeah. location that they could um, to, to shoot uh, the movie. Um, so I, I guess the American Southwest, yeah. right? Yeah, a remote stretch of the Southwest, yeah. Definitely. So so it's not it, it's not recognizable in that way, and it doesn't look like it's fertile. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a surprise when they do discover that plant life is possible. But they land in a lake. They do. Water water is good. But I I think think maybe the thought is like, you know, there may have been life here once, but not now. Well, there's there's a passing mention, like they poison the water. So I think maybe assuming there was a nuclear incident, which I think is what Mm. we are meant to understand, like that is maybe meant to be an area of the world that was obliterated through nuclear fallout. Because... I spent a lot of time this viewing, like wondering where on earth this is positioned because of the Statue of Liberty reveal at the end. And Mm. that would position us presumably on the East Coast. I don't know how the Statue of Liberty would get in an inland body of water. But they blew it up. Yeah, I I guess it could have like flown to the American Southwest. Yeah. Maniacs. Yeah. But um, the kind of the point of all this is the locations are so interesting it's such an integral part to the kind of the setting up the vibe of this movie and the the world that it's operating in and that remove from any familiar geography that mm-hmm. that we know i think contributes to that effect that and then you add the score onto that too um by jerry goldsmith yeah that that is really chancy keith kicked off a series at the dissolve called laser age with an essay that compared planet of the apes with 2001 and i think you think of them as very different films in the sense that Kubrick really went out on a limb and did this sort of art, art film in Planet of the Apes is maybe a little bit more of a commercial play but it's not I, you know I think that's kind of short giving yeah, short, shri- short shrift to yeah. Planet of the Apes I think I think there's a level of aggression right in that first act in, between the the music and the and the uh, location and the and uh, the photography it's all it's pretty it's risky uh, you know I mean I think it settles into something I wouldn't say more conventional but p- palatable or expected once the uh, apes come along but getting there is uh, pretty disorienting and, and kind of risky for a big mainstream film yeah I mean one way it's quite different from 2001 is is it's not the clear vision of a well I mean 2001 is Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke mm-hmm. but you know Kubrick but this is definitely not the vision of, of one person Arthur P. Jacobs as producer kind of fell in love with this idea of, a, of making a movie about talking apes based on Pierre Boulle's novel uh, and it went through a bunch of drafts and a bunch of different revisions and one thing that happened for practical reasons was it was supposed to be set in a technologically advanced world you know not unlike the 20th century and Franklin Shafter came in to direct and, and said, you know, that's going to be very expensive. Mm-hmm. What if we made them agrarian? <laughs> uh, and I think that really kind of helps sell the idea of, of the society being kind of held back from its possibilities. I think that works quite well. I do wonder where they got the camera, though. 
because they're taking a picture after the hunt. Well, I think you know? it's roughly late 19th century technology, and yeah. at that point, you would have a camera. Right. It also, just, it's convenient for the story. Yeah, yeah, no, no, exactly. <laughs> um, that camera combined with the design of the ape colony or whatever it is, it was giving me a very Flintstones vibe, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like imagining a bird inside the camera, <laughs> like sketching or something. <laughs> but that is neither here nor there. But I, I didn't know this until I, I got this script that there was a, a originally a different version set in a more like technologically advanced setting. And I've spent a lot of time since I read that thinking about if I would prefer it the other way. I, I guess I'm curious what the advantages of placing it in a technologically advanced world as opposed to a more agrarian one would be. I wonder that too, because I think as Keith was saying earlier, the issue of advancement is important in the film and and uh i don't understand how you kind of put the apes in a location where they're more modern or technologically advanced without spoiling that theme of you know dr zayas throwing the brakes on how Mm -hmm. far they're allowed to progress given where things are you know seem certain to go what a kind of a despairing notion too that i mean this came out in the middle of the cold war and um comes to that conclusion that 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 inevitability that this is going to happen this is this is the future we've set it in motion and you know humanity is going to kill itself you haven't even seen the first sequel but we can talk about that a little little bit down the line what do you think of the makeup i i I, i'm not going to say i'm a fan i I think it's in no way would i mistake any of these performers for actual apes Mm -hmm. but as a planet we're sort of intelligent walking on two legs type apes i think i think it works and it's a nice amount of they're able to act through the makeup quite well in this yeah i think uh roddy mcdowell in particular does a very good job uh acting through the makeup i've I've noticed that he is often kind of moving his mouth mouth even when he's not talking in an effort to just kind of like give some expression to a face that you can't express a lot through so yeah i think the kind of your your three main apes do a pretty good job of uh, acting through the makeup maybe not so much young lucius uh, who's quite a bit more uh, stone-faced <laughs> when he shows up but you know as far as the apes that you spend most of the time looking at i think they they definitely make an effort to act through the makeup, not so much through movement, which is something that like probably wouldn't have stood out to me or bothered me as much without this new series of Planet of the Apes films, which relies so much on motion capture and performances that are much more ape-like in their movement. So having seen those movies, the human quality of movement to the apes in this kind of felt a little more jarring this time around. But for the most part, I'm on board. It, it's not dated. It's yeah, not dated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank um, you. I think you could you could complain potentially that the apes are not more ape like, but then you would have to counter that complaint with the fact that these are you know, we're calling them apes, but what are they? I mean, you know, this is an evolved species of some I mean, something we've never seen before. I mean, this is a couple thousand years into the future, so they can kind of look as they want. And I think the key element in the in the success of the makeup is that they're expressive. We do get real characters out of Dr. Zaius and Cornelius and Zero. Yeah, that's the most important thing, I think. And I think it also helps that we have the counterpoint of the human performances, which are much more animalistic. And I think kind of speak to what you're talking about with contributing to the notion that apes evolved into a more human-like stance where as humans devolved i guess mm-hmm. to a more animalistic presence so the pairing of the two definitely helps in that respect we think of uh, heston's performance <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I really do not like <laughs> it. I'm sorry. I know it's iconic and all that. And I mean, he looks very good in his, his various scraps of cloth, but it's it's too much. It's too much for me, especially compared with the... I mean, when, when someone in an ape mask is giving the more naturalistic performance, <laughs> you know, it's it maybe may a bit of a problem. I, although I do wonder if because the ape actors are performing at a slightly more like elevated volume to emote through that makeup if he was maybe matching that without the <laughs> the barrier that the makeup provides. Well, it's not like Heston's ever really going to give you a subtle performance. Yeah, so. yeah, that's just me being generous. Yeah, but. I think that I think the way I would consider it, the way I consider Heston performances more broadly is that he's a star, he's not an actor. Sure. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's he's somebody who's going to give you a great deal of presence he certainly does here but but no it's not a you know i think i think it, i could imagine another actor playing that role better for mm. sure yeah. but i'm not sure if the film really calls for it or if it's harmed by his performance either as i think i've already mentioned i was really struck this time by how much i disliked taylor um, on this viewing where that didn't stick out to me before and i wondered to what extent that is the character versus the performance but like he just exudes smugness especially in those in that first act you know when he's mocking his fellow astronaut for being upset you know and and just like i don't know it bothers me and it creates like an emotional remove from that character still can't accept it time's wiped out everything you ever knew it's all dust prove it if we can't get back it's still just a theory it's a fact landon buy it you'll sleep better nothing will grow here there's just a trace of carbohydrates all the nitrogen is locked into the nitrates. No dangerous ionization? No. Well, if there's no life here, we've got just 72 hours to find it. That's when the groceries run out. Let's go. Which direction? That way. Any particular reason? None at all. Come on. <laughs> 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 See, but I think the second act, though, he where he's really standing up for things that we might believe in, of mm. of reason and of science and of of humanity, you know, against people who are who are denying that which is clear in front of them. I just feel like in, at that moment, um, you kind of connect with him. Um, but Zero and Cornelius do it so much better. Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> I, I, I like I like Heston. I, I like these big, bold star performances from from this era. I mean, I like I'll defend Shatner as Kirk you know, any day of the week, and this is kind of kind yeah. of in the same the that. same zone as that. And mm-hmm. to, to the point where it feels like every other episode, Kirk had to defend humanity from somebody who's who is trying to denigrate it, and uh, we get that that here. But I that said, I can definitely see where it's not to everyone's taste. Yeah. This performance. <laughs> um, I was actually just thinking about defending humanity and. And the Statue of Liberty, we're, we happen to be recording this on the day that Donald Trump's uh, advisor, Stephen Miller, kind of slagged the Statue of Liberty. No, the Statue the, of Liberty is... is a, it's oh, a, it's fine. Yeah, it's he, fine. He, he it's just that, actually it's, on the poem, but... It's just like, that communist poem. He's, he, right, he, he's just, but it's like, it. it's like I was thinking, like, the Statue of Liberty has been destroyed, uh, you know, again, yeah. but not a literal way this time. And, you know, it's just the thing that it stands for is being um, eroded. Um, and so Planet of the Apes in that respect was quite resonant. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, even removed from the Cold War, which 
made such an apocalypse seem like it could happen tomorrow. And not that, you know, we may just be deluding ourselves and thinking Seriously. that, not thinking that now, mm-hmm. but this film is just as timely. I, I think that's part of why people revisit it and why it gets sort of remade and reworked and, and referenced. And, and uh, yeah, I, I think this film holds up very well. It's also just like a very malleable concept. Like it, we'll probably get into this more with war, but there's a lot of readings you can put onto different elements of this film. It, it, I don't think it's like a, a straight A to B analogy throughout, but there, like we've already mentioned the science and reason versus religion argument. There's obviously like a racial element to this and a sla- you know, a slavery or even like Holocaust, um, message you could put on this like it's a very malleable metaphor you know and the new trilogy definitely takes advantage of that Uh, i can't speak to the sequels to this film looking at you keith whether they do the (laughs) same but i suspect they probably do yeah i mean the subsequent films really tease out the civil rights metaphor Mm -hmm. in in some really interesting ways you brought in the holocaust and imprisonment and i think the fates of the other astronauts here are really chilling like i always Mm. i kind of always forget about encountering the one astronaut and stuffed in in the museum it's really it's really creepy image and the other one um with the brain surgery yeah it's something and and to realize that that we don't even know who's ordered that operation necessarily presumably zayas but but there's other apes somewhere that that willfully rob this person of his uh, ability to speak and you know it's it's chilling stuff so here here's my question about the the brain surgery are, are we being led to believe it is being done out of a spirit of discovery or is it entirely meant to silence these uh humans who could expose the the grand lie behind the society i think the latter that, okay. that's my there's no even lie. shade of the former you, no i you think know? the only reason taylor uh was not subject to it was because he spoke out in such a public way that mm. there were too many witnesses gotcha. well and also i don't think they expected him to speak sure because uh, he, had, he had injured himself so uh, i was curious keith you talk about the civil rights angle being evoked more in the sequels i mean can you say as far as this film is concerned, can you say much more about how that metaphor is developed than simply there's conflict between different races in this film? I think it's more like sort of an element in this one. Certainly you get the apes as overlords of humans, but you also get the hierarchical breakdown within the apes, which which is somewhat talked about with the chimpanzees can advance because yeah. uh, the orangutans are mm-hmm. the aristocratic class and, and that the gorillas are meant to do all the grunt work. You know, there's, there's definitely all that there. Is, you know, I don't know that you can find a... It's not that easy to find a one-to-one correlation, but the idea of that there's a very much a society classed by the species of, of the apes is, is uh, you know, it's kind of hard to miss some yeah. connection there. It, well, right. Though that, that that part wasn't that clear to me. No? Watching, okay. Watching, uh, Planet of the Apes, but, but, I, but I trust Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, it's just a passing mes- mention, the thing about being a chimpanzee. But that it, it was something that stuck out to me on this viewing, and it did make me wonder to what extent that hierarchy is played out in future films. Because I, I honestly didn't even get until you just said it that, like, orangutans are at the top of the hierarchy. It makes sense because of Dr. Zayas and the other council members. Council members, yes. The the other orangutans. Oh, I'm sure it's just a coincidence they're all orangutans. I'm sure sure it's just a coincidence they all went to the same schools and their their families (laughs) were the leaders before them. Right. But is it, does that become more of a storytelling element? Sort in, of. In, or is it more of well, just in the background? I mean, in the, in the sequel, sort of. I mean, I mean there's not a lot of time, without spoiling it, there's not a lot of time in the second one spent uh, on that those elements. And then the, there's a time jump back to the present day with the third films that... It's 1991, right? 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the far, far, future, the of far future of 1991. Right. I want to have another question f- for for the group in that the twist ending. As far as we're thinking about the film in terms of like science and reason and rationality and all these things that we cherish, all that stuff gets upended by the end end of the film, right? So what is it? Where where does the film end up landing? I mean, what, is this a kind of a conservative film? Is this a film that is endorsing the halting of progress, the absence of the um, deliberate obfuscation of the truth? I think it just lives in the ambiguity of it. And I think I think it's sort of wonderful that Taylor gets in touch with his humanity and finds things to defend about it when after beginning the film sort of done done with the whole race and the whole planet. But also, you know, to have that snatched away at the last minute is is kind of colors that and and some I, th- I think we're kind of on board with his defenses and then uh, that makes the end that much more chilling i don't know that there's, there's a firm conclusion to be drawn from it but i think that you kind of have to live in the gray area some sort of like forbidden zone of thought <laughs> where you to, can entertain both ideas at once and of course it reminded me too of how much it has in common with the m night Shyamalan film the village <laughs> right yeah, well, sure. Why? Why? This you is should good. have seen Keith's this, face this, this, fall. Just disturbing. That. I, I mean, but I mean, the, and the but again, the same ideas at play there in terms of town, uh, in terms yeah. of the elders of the of the village deliberately keeping um, people from knowing the truth in order to preserve their way of life, which might actually be a better situation than than if they were out in the uh, you know world of airplanes and other things. Spoilers for the village. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's a twist. <laughs> I, th- I don't know. We're so, we got to set a moratorium culturally for the for for twists. I feel like we can't be shy. We, we, we at least have one on this podcast. This is a spoiler. This, this zone, is a spoiler. So. This, that's true. The whole, it's a general spoiler zone. Yeah. We'll just drop. We'll just drop them on you uh, for movies that we're not even talking about. We, we, we won't spoil anything from the last six months to a year, yeah. un- unless we are actively discussing yeah, it. That's a good rule. One thing I tend to forget between viewings is how kind of strange the sexual politics of this movie are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, first of all, we're kind of led to believe that that three male astronauts and one female astronaut are going to colonize a world, which is not necessarily... The, there's a lot of things wrong with that. Yeah. We can get into that. <laughs> then we leave, have Taylor kind of left paired off with Nova, played with the very fetching Linda Harrison, but basically is a different species, sort of a subspecies of humanity that, that you know, she's not his intellectual equal. She can't speak. So that's very odd. On the other hand, we have Cornelius and Zira who have have a very equal footed, uh, loving relationship. You know, they both have inter- their own intellectual pursuits, and and they don't really seem all that jealous. I don't know what what, what conclusions can we draw from this, if if any. Oh well, I mean. I think as we just uh, addressed with the last question, it's hard to draw any uh, direct conclusions with with this movie, which loves its ambiguity. But there there is that line from Dr. Zayas where he says, I didn't realize that man could be monogamous, which is very interesting in the, I think, in the context of this story about developed society versus not and the idea that monogamy is a construct and it's something that comes along with a, you know, an advanced society, but it is not necessarily human nature. And I think maybe like that's what is being nodded toward with the Taylor Nova relationship. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it, they are in a monogamous relationship, just like out of necessity, but like more kind of that animal drive that's beneath human sexuality that like transcends speech or, or whatever else. That is kind of a weird message or idea to insert into the story that has so many other ideas going around in it. I don't particularly like it, but I think it is interesting in the context of what we consider to be the markings of an advanced society in terms of sexuality. 
I think I think you're onto something though. I think part of what makes this film so revisitable and long lived is that it for all the moments where it lays it on thick about hum- humanity and, and, and Taylor's lectures and all this, there's a lot that's kind of like unformed, half formed ideas yeah. in this that, that, that are fun to play with. And, and it's a lot richer than if they had drawn direct one-to-one analogies and, you know, made it a little clear what they were trying to say. I mean, I think what you say is right. That, that notion of monogamy being a construct. I mean, if you look at the species of animals other than humans, the, 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 these things don't apply. It makes I think it makes sense, but it also, there's also this element Except of like, lobsters. There's also, <laughs> there's also this element <laughs> of having a science fiction film with a scantily clad, uh, sexually available... Yeah. Uh, it feels much more that than yeah. any yeah, of the for, other stuff we're talking about, to be quite honest. For all the ways this film broke with recent <laughs> science fiction uh, that preceded it, it also was had one foot in that world, uh, particularly when it comes to Nova. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do also think there may be a, a little echo of the counterculture that was uh, rising, or, or the counterculture that was becoming dominant, I guess, around the this dawn time. Of the counterculture, yes, and the yes. rise. Because there are definitely some lines, especially between Taylor and Lucius. Uh, there's the the thing about beards being a fad and don't trust anyone over thirty. Um, <laughs> you, like you can kind of squint and see, like maybe there's sort of a free love thing happening here with the the Nova Taylor relationship, mm-hmm. but it's it's barely there and um they, they don't consummate their relationship in the film if that oh i i always assume they do it just happens yeah, off screen that's what i was thinking too. i mean they're in a cage with nothing to do all day <laughs> there's some very comfortable straw on the floor <laughs> yeah but G- galen's there watching i don't know yeah anyway. smoking a cigar leering at them <laughs> i don't think it would work i don't know taylor doesn't seem to care <laughs> T- taylor strikes me as a kind that would just go ahead with it <laughs> what's well, a g-rated film <laughs> Is it really? For all the, yeah, well, well it's G rated. Oh, I guess G, this, this was, was 1968. 68G yeah, yeah, yeah. was a little different. That's right, yeah. that's right. Sorry. It was a hard G. Well, uh, you know, now that we've arrived at talking about free love, it might be a good place to, to wrap it up. Plan of the Apes. Stay tuned for part two where we talk about free love more. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back. I was on vacation when you recorded the last episode, which is a bummer because I love Carnival of Souls. Uh, one question. I don't understand why you didn't just play the organ music <laughs> through the whole episode. as uh, like bed music. It would have been awesome. Yeah, I, I, I could have too because it's it's uh, public domain now, right? So yeah. I, I should have just done it. Oh, well. Oh, well. Well, for as much as you know, I would have been loved to be here to talk about Carnival of Souls, our listeners mostly want to talk about a ghost story. So <laughs> uh, not always in the most positive terms either. This is this, uh, Jennifer, can you share one such letter? Julius wrote us a very long letter, uh, and so I'm just going to read an excerpt from it that kind of gets to the heart of his argument. Uh, Julius writes, I think you missed an underlying theme in a ghost story that maybe David Lowry didn't even intend, but is nonetheless very present. Regardless of Lowry's intent for a ghost story, the subconscious message of the film is a mourning of the dominance of white men in American culture. Throughout the film, several different scenes completely pulled me out of the movie and made me think about the racial connotations of several sequences. Perhaps the most damning sequence is the impoverished Spanish-speaking single-mother Hispanic family who move in after M finally moves on. This movie, about white people who can't move on after their death, proceeds to terrorize the Mexican family through poltergeisting their glasses and plates at dinner. The only reason this family has terrorized is because some white dude is upset his girlfriend moved on and left him behind. I should also point out that the only people to be terrorized on screen is the Mexican family. 
This is unfortunate because the person who deserved to be terrorized was Will Oldham's blowhard proselytizer, who gives big speeches about how Beethoven never liked his legacy and that everyone is going to die and forget about you and nothing really matters. It's hard not to miss this scene as a white man saying that the white people's legacies are in jeopardy because we're all going to die. Guys, discuss. <laughs> um, well, uh, I, I should say, ha- having read this whole letter, Julius did not care for a ghost story. Yeah, at, it kind of com- comes through in the letter. And yeah. to be honest, I, I don't feel like this one example uh, can really be extrapolated into quite the... Well, he has more. Yeah, he, he, has, he has another example about the Native Americans but I, I, murdering the white I don't know that too. it's not. I don't know that... Larry is unaware of this. I think it's possible this is commentary as well. I mean, yeah. I mean, you could certainly like give it a Planet of the Apes reading, and you know, there's a lot of different metaphors that you can attach to this. Well, and are we really to take a ghost story entirely as a lament? Anyway, I mean, we we talked about in the episode about uh, how, dif- how how about this relationship not being an uncomplicated one, and I, I just I don't necessarily think that it's it, it's quite so intentionally or unintentionally you know judgmental in that way you could also i mean also say it's a film about a white person trying to hold on beyond what he should be holding on to this property as well and and, and mm. i don't know i'm just not sure the commentary is there one way or the other but i'm not sure i'm sure yeah. buy this one I, I, sorry I, julius yeah i mean i i think julius definitely did the work and we will post his his full letter on facebook so that you can all check it out because there, you know, he definitely draws some connections. I think uh, Julius is maybe coming from a more critical place uh, with this movie than we are. The colors that that reading in a way that like I, I don't think we perceive that movie, but you know that's what movies are about, man. Yeah, you know? I think yeah, I like this, I like this movie too, so I'm less inclined to see this element of it perhaps but we're you know he's hardly alone in not digging this movie yeah. uh we'll get to that this is a, but i would say this is an, an original take on the film that i had not read before from the people who dislike mm-hmm. the movie i've, I've not heard this well, drawn I, out at all and i'm not and i certainly don't i now that you say, say the full letter ha- includes um reference to the native americans on that that maybe and also the the black ceo of the uh the, oh, wow. the, the skyscraper wow. okay so, uh, so, so know, he had company. a very so okay so it's an excerpt yeah. uh and uh the argument is a little bit fuller than that so we'll have uh people take a look at it and see what they think it's quite full and, and well argued and and uh, yeah people should read it on our yeah, julius page. julius is uh, a big uh, part of the dissolve yeah. and, we see you julius we're we're glad you're keeping up with us Uh, we also got not one but two letters suggesting some additional reading that might pair well with a ghost story Scott mind reading one of those Uh, sure Uh, TJ writes ghost story immediately reminded me of Richard McGuire's graphic novel slash comic here here portrays centuries and millennia passing time by illustrating images of a single place on earth spread across eras and epochs the spot is most often the interior of an American home but it is also a Native American hunting ground in an eerie oceanscape there are some connections to families of people developed that emphasize parallel experiences across time and societal changes. The book is fascinating to go through in one sitting or to just pop open a page and contemplate one snapshot. P.S. I am a quantum chemist listener, and I still can't offer any insight into the unusual behavior of time within the film. <laughs> I love that we have a quantum chem- yeah, chemist listener. <laughs> that's good, because I'm, I was also quite confused as well um, by that. And st- still, I, th- I, can, I have to tell you, there hasn't been a film this year that I've thought about more than a ghost story because I just I cannot sort my thoughts out on that movie for the life of me, and I, I I really have to revisit it. 
soon. The time issue is just one of a dozen things I'm thinking about with this thing. Well, maybe maybe I will lend you my copy of here before you leave because I'm I'm so glad that uh, TJ and and actually a couple other uh, listeners wrote in to mention here, which I am kicking myself for not uh, bringing up during the podcast. Although I don't know if anyone on that panel would have been familiar with it. Keith, are, are I haven't, you familiar? No, I, I haven't read this it's, one. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, and TJ does a better job of uh, describing it than, than I probably could. But um, it, it definitely is kind of playing in the same space uh, as Ghost Story when it comes to the idea of the long reach and the back and forth nature of time. And it takes place all in the same space. And, and most often it's a home, but because it goes far into the past and very far into the future as well, it becomes other things as well, um, very similar to a ghost story. So I strongly second this endorsement. If you were at all intrigued by that element of a ghost story or just if you like things that are great. Yeah, I'll well, check it out. It, it's also worth noting that our other here recommendation came with an email with the subject line, ghost story. Uh, <laughs> followed by a long tale of regret about going to see the film. So this is clearly a movie that's provoking a lot of strong reaction. I would not be surprised. It's like the witch of this year. Yeah. It? Or the It Comes at Night of this month. Yeah. <laughs> if A24 is putting it out, people ain't liking it. Um, <laughs> critics, except or, for critics. Or critics are it. loving it. Nobody else is liking it. Hey, critics I have a theory on the, the whole pie thing. Again, another thing I've been thinking about. <laughs> okay, so... You, you, Genevieve, no- feedback noted self feedback. Yes, this <laughs> okay. is self feedback. You, Genevieve, noted that you know eating that much pie it's not a big deal because she doesn't eat the crust. Right. Ah, so <laughs> Rudy Mara has never eaten a pie before. It is possible that she takes the crust as one would take an, an orange peel. It's uh-huh. something that's not to <laughs> she be. She doesn't know to eat the crust. It's, it's, it's uh-huh. something that just that just brackets the thing you're supposed to eat mm-hmm. that it, that itself is not edible. I mean, it was a real... Rudy Mary does not know how to eat a pie, the, the, is what I'm saying. Yes, the, the, that I think is very accurate. It was also just like a really not appetizing looking pie crust. As someone who makes her own pie crust. It yeah. looked store-bought, didn't it? Yeah. Okay. yeah. I'll ask, I have questions to ask you about pie crust. That's the one thing that's been kind of like... <laughs> Eluding you? Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. Secrets chill the butter. <laughs> I feel like there's a certain amount of mission drift setting into this podcast. So with, well, on that note, uh, as always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on our Facebook page for discussion. That wraps up this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll choose our deadliest weapons, mount our horses, and head into the desolate snowscape of war for the Planet of the Apes. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Check out our fancy new updated site at nextpictureshow.net. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And follow us on Twitter at, at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be desperately grunting and pointing at our throats to prove that we have the ability to speak. See you next time. (laughs) Oh, my God, I was wrong. It was Earth all along. You finally made a monkey. Yes, we finally made a monkey. Yes, you finally.